Father in heaven, thank you again that we can enter into your presence with great expectation that you are going to bless us. Father, this morning I pray that you would help us to see Jesus in all of his glory. That we would crave that same experience in our own lives, Lord. We would follow Jesus, the champion of champions, the warrior of warriors, the victorious general. And have that same experience in our own lives. Speak to our hearts, Lord, we ask. And may your Holy Spirit apply it right where it needs to be, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have seen in our study that the Bible does not describe a wartime part of life and a non-wartime part of life. The Bible simply describes that life is war. The time of peace will come as we continue to follow our general. That time of peace will happen when God's people walk on streets of gold. And brothers and sisters, the Bible has assured to us that promise that if we are faithful and hold on a little longer, that we will be with Jesus one day. In this battle that we are fighting, we have seen that we need to be properly clothed in the armor of God to be protected by the onslaught of the enemy. We have also found that in this battle that God has given to us two weapons to fight against the enemy. God is not just asking us to stand there and take the attack of the enemy, but he wants us to vanquish him and to destroy him and to chase him away. And he gives us two effective tools that we have seen, Bible study and prayer. We've been looking at the narrative of Jesus in the last 48 hours of his life. We find that before Jesus came to this time of intense battle at the end of his life, that he had grown accustomed to spending time in the Word of God and spending time in prayer with his Heavenly Father. And as he came to this time of intense battle in the Garden of Gethsemane, we find that he comes out victorious in surrendering his will to the will of his heavenly father. We also find that on the other side of the story that the disciples had their own fabricated theology that they had come up with about how the Messiah would play out. They did not base it on a plain thus saith the Lord, but on the popular traditions and theories of the day, neither did they enter into that time of prayer with their heavenly father. Thus, when the battle intensified, they crumbled very quickly. And we followed that narrative out yesterday in our study together, and we find that as Jesus got deeper and deeper into this battle, that it was just one victory after another after another. And for the disciples, as they got deeper into that intensified battle, it was one defeat after another, after another. And we came to the conclusion as we looked at that story play out that we want to follow the example of Jesus. 
Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4 describes an end-time apocalyptic group of people known as the 144,000. These people are described as following the general, the lamb, wherever he goes. If the lamb goes to the garden of Gethsemane, these faithful people follow him there. If the lamb goes to the uh, trial, the, lamb, uh, the, the, the followers follow him there. If the lamb goes and is physically and spiritually abused and mistreated, his followers follow him there. Wherever the lamb goes, these people are found following him wherever he goes. I want to be part of that group. How about you? I didn't have time to go through all six of the trials that Jesus went through before his ultimate crucifixion. I will leave you to fill in some of those details. We looked at one of those trials yesterday as he stood before Caiaphas. Caiaphas, as he looked into the face of Jesus, fell under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And not just him, but the promiscuous crowd that was there to watch this trial. They all fell under the spell of the Holy Spirit. Because wherever Jesus went, he took the Holy Spirit with him. And that Holy Spirit that sustained him also brought conviction because of Jesus' presence in Pilate's or in uh, Caiaphas's court. I want that power of the Holy Spirit, that nonverbal power in my witness, where I don't even have to speak a word, but just the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life brings conviction into the hearts of other people. And then when God gives me the right words to speak, those words will be much more impactful. There were six trials. Three of them were religious. The verdict was guilty. Three of them were civil. The verdict, innocent. These last two trials of Jesus that we're going to look at this morning, before Herod, finally before Pilate, some have referred to as the trials of silence. Jesus speaks no words in these two trials, and I want to learn some lessons at the feet of the greatest of all soldiers. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23. We look at Pilate. Uh, well, actually, this is the, the trial of, before Herod, before Jesus went to Herod. <clears throat> he was obviously before Pilate the first time, the first of the civil trials. Pilate, as you follow the story out, was a spineless man. He was one who was controlled by the whims of other people. But as he looked into the face of the world's redeemer, he saw in it an innocent man. He saw this man who stood before him who did no wrong. It was for malice, envy, and hatred that the Jews had delivered Jesus up to Pilate to judge him as a criminal. Pilate, trying to avoid the responsibility of killing an innocent man, heard that Herod was in town and that Jesus, being a Galilean, was from Herod's territory. And so trying to shove off the responsibility from his plate to the plate of Herod, Pilate sends Jesus over to be judged by Herod. In the book, Desire of Ages, we are told that the two magistrates made friends over the trial of the Savior. Luke chapter 23 and verse 12, the Bible says, And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. 
two civil leaders becoming friends ultimately over the execution of the world's redeemer. This was the same Herod who killed the greatest of prophets, John the Baptist. As Herod listened to the message of John, the greatest of prophets, he again fell under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. But again, he also being a spineless man was uh, controlled by the whims and dictation of the popular sentiment at the time. And so he put to death this man of God and shunned the conviction of the Holy Spirit in his life. Friends, the Bible is full of stories of men and women who have rejected the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and the end has always been ruined. Verses 8 and 9, the Bible says this, Luke chapter 23, verses 8 and 9. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him and hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him. With many words, but he answered him, nothing. Herod wanted to see the power of God, but he didn't want to experience it in his own life. And I pray that as sons and daughters of God, as followers of Christ, as soldiers of Christ, that we would crave the power of God in our lives more than the manifestation of the power of God in other people's lives. That we would crave that experience for ourselves, that we would yearn to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that even though the popular sentiment may be going in one direction and the Holy Spirit may be leading us in the other direction, that this would be what we crave more than what the world has to offer. For Pilate, Jesus was more of a means of entertainment than a means of salvation. The book, Desire of Ages, page 729, we are told, looking with compassion into the serene face of the world's Redeemer, he, that is Herod, read in it only wisdom and purity. He, as well as Pilate, was satisfied that Christ had been accused through malice and envy. Herod sends to gather together the decrepit and the lame that were in the city. He brings them in before Jesus and he commands them, heal these people. Jesus was like a circus show for him. He wanted to be appealed and and satisfied and entertained by the miraculous working power of Jesus, but Jesus was not there to satisfy Herod's curiosity. He was there to secure the redemption of the entire human race. He had his eye on the goal. The goal was to purchase your salvation. And he wasn't going to lower himself down to the level of Herod. Herod told Jesus, if thou canst work a miracle, 
for others. Work them now for thine own good. And it will serve thee a good purpose. Three times, Herod appeals to Jesus, heal these people, heal these people. If you heal them, it will go well for you. I'm thankful that Jesus was not moved by such bribery. Mm. Alan White tells us in the book Desire of Ages that each time Herod encouraged Jesus to perform a miracle to heal himself, that he was met with the sternest of all rebukes, silence. Herod had rejected the truth, not only that was spoken by John the Baptist, but that he had heard spoken by Jesus during his ministry. And because he had rejected that truth, Jesus had nothing to say to him. Listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. If God has spoken a word of truth to you and has convicted you about something in your life, and you have neglected to obey that truth, do not expect God to reveal more truth to you. We must start where the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, and when God convicts us of that sin, we must ask God to give us the victory in that area if we expect to progress and grow in our experience with God. Herod did not choose to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Jesus had nothing more to add to what had already been said to him. The Lord has spoken a word of conviction to you. The Bible says, if you've heard the voice of God speaking to you you today, harden not your hearts. The temptation sometimes when we read these stories to say, well, that's Herod, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Surely I'm not going to do that. But brothers and sisters, we need to be careful of making statements such as that because the devil well knows that what worked for, high, what worked for Herod can work for you and me if we are not following the example of Jesus, the greatest of all soldiers. Desire of Ages, page 730, says this, the mission of Christ in this world was not to gratify idle curiosity. He came to heal the brokenhearted. He could have spoken any word, could he have spoken any words to heal the bruise of sin-sick souls? He would not have kept silent, but he had no words for those who would but trample the truth under their unholy feet. If he knew that Herod's heart was open and receptive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in his life. Jesus would have gladly had some words of advice for Herod. But that was not the course that Herod chose for himself. The silence of Jesus enraged Herod. He was indignant that somebody would not acknowledge his earthly authority. The eyes of compassion that once looked upon Jesus and concluded that he was an innocent man now were changed. 
And he, with the rest of the people, denounces Jesus as an imposter. Notice what the Bible says in verse 11 of Luke chapter 23. And Herod, with his men of war, set him, Jesus, at naught, or they despised him and mocked him and arrayed him in gorgeous robes and sent him again to Pilate. I'm thankful for the spirit of prophecy. Ellen White fills in some of the details here that could be easily overlooked if we didn't meditate on it long enough. Page 731 of the book Desire of Ages says this, No sooner were these words spoken when Herod denounced Jesus as an imposter. No sooner were these words spoken than a rush was made for Christ. Like wild beasts, the crowd darted upon their prey. Jesus was dragged this way and that. Herod joining the mob in seeking to humiliate the Son of God had not the Roman soldiers interposed and forced the maddened throng for uh, forced back the maddened throng, the Savior would have been torn into pieces. Lord have mercy. Seeking to humiliate the Son of God. Do you know what it's like to be rudely treated? To be falsely accused? Be spoken evil about for something that you never did? Do you know what that feeling is like? I'm sure that you can identify to a certain extent but not in its totality because we will not ever fully understand what Jesus went through. Ellen White tells us that the crowd was so maddened in their rage against Jesus, as she says, like wild beasts, they darted upon him, pulling him this way and that, just about ripping off his arms and legs. It was painful. Not only had Jesus been denied by Judas, not only had his disciples scattered like sheep without a shepherd, not only did, not only did Peter advise the rest of the disciples to run and save themselves, as we saw yesterday, not only did Jesus go out through trial after trial after trial, be falsely accused, not only had he been up all night long without any food or drink, but now the physical abuse intensifies. As these wicked men heap all of their satanic fury upon Jesus, Ellen White makes a startling statement. She tells us that there were some in the audience that day in Herod's judgment hall who came forward as the crowd surged upon Jesus to tear him apart like wild animals. And as they came forward to engage in that act of physical abuse, once they had the opportunity to look into the world's Redeemer, when they looked into His face, they turned away because they could not do to Jesus what everybody else was doing. Just looking at Him 
made a difference in their lives. Brothers and sisters, we need that non-verbal witness where the Holy Spirit has permeated our life so much so that even though we are sleep deprived, even though we are physically abused, even though we have blood that is staining our bodies, even though we look terrible, the Holy Spirit is speaking through our lives even though no words are coming out of our mouths. For many of us, we depend upon our words to be the power that brings conviction into the lives of other people. But friends, I want to depend upon a more powerful power, the Holy Spirit, to bring lasting conviction into the lives of men and women. And I pray that God will fill us with that Holy Ghost power that our presence will bring conviction. And then when our words are spoken, it will send it home to the heart and bring people into the kingdom of heaven. As they took a glimpse into the loving face of Jesus, they could not engage in this rude mistreatment of him. They turned back in silence. I ask you the question this morning. How is your patience when you are mistreated? This is the battlefield. This is frontline battle right here. How is your patience when you are mistreated and done wrong? How is your patience when somebody is doing something to you that you feel is unjust? My Bible tells me in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Now, I find it curious. I've read this passage I don't know how many times as an evangelist. And maybe I'm just a little slow. But I found it interesting that that passage comes right after the third angel's message, which is the mark of the beast. Yes, we need patience right now, but the war is going to intensify, brothers and sisters. As you read the three angels' message and you go through it, it gets more and more intense. And then it, you, you get to this point where the entire world is being persuaded to receive the counterfeit seal, the mark of the beast, a symbol of allegiance to earthly power. And when this world is forcing people to receive the mark of the beast through physical mistreatment, it's at that time that the Bible says, here is the patience of the saints. My Bible is telling me that the experience of God's people in the last day, in that intensified battle, right before Jesus comes back, that their experience is going to be the same experience of Jesus. As he was going through these trials and being mistreated, being falsely accused, he had patience. And that patience was a tremendous witness to his accusers. And dare I say, may have even been a means of conversion for many. 
Here is the patience of the saints. Revelation 14 tells us who those saints are. In verse 4, they are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Go with me quickly to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 15. We look at Mark's account of the next trial of Christ. There is a lot that is in the final trial. We won't have time to go through it all. Obviously, Pilate was not very happy when he saw Jesus coming back. He thought he had successfully passed on the responsibility of condemnation to Herod. He was faced with a difficult situation. Do what he knew to be right and face the anger of the crowd or do what he knew to be wrong and have their approval. You'll be faced with that same thing one day, friends. Should I do what my family wants me to do, or should I do what God wants me to do? Should I do what my work is telling me to do, or should I do what God wants me to do? Should I do what, in the last days during the mark of the beast, should I do what the law is telling me to do, or should I do what God tells me to do? And friends, every time you will find that the popular sentiment is going in the way of the world. This is why, as I've stated many times, and must be stated again, We need to pray that God would get us to the point in our spiritual experience where if all earthly support is knocked out from underneath us, it will not change our spiritual walk with the Lord one iota. That we will hold firm to the hand of our heavenly general. Pilate was faced with this decision. What should I do? He is innocent. Fortunately, Pilate chose to violate his conscience. And the result of the violation of his conscience led to a lifetime of misery. Friends, it's astonishing to me. The same thing happens in our own life. Whenever we violate our conscience, we think that it's going to be good. But the end is always misery. Yet we do it time and time again. Again, may God help us to remember the misery of choosing sin over our Savior. You would do well to go back and read the chapter in Pilate's Judgment Hall as a reflection upon this study together this morning. But I want to go quickly to a part of this passage here, beginning in verse 15. Mark chapter 15 and verse 15, the Bible says, And so Pilate, willing to content the people, don't miss that little point there, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, the hall of judgment. And they called together the whole band 
And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it upon his head and began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him, bowing their knees and worshiping him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, put on his own clothes, led him out to crucify him. Isaiah, in prophetic writing, chapter 50 and verse 3, he says, I gave, back, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. You suppose Jesus read that Bible passage? He was a student of Bible prophecy. He knew the messianic prophecies that pointed to him as the world's redeemer. He knew that this was coming. And he knew that the only way that he would be victorious in this intensified battle is if he was submitted and surrendered to his father's will. Desire of Ages, page 734, says this, Satan led the cruel mob in its abuse of the Savior. Again, remember, it's not the people. It's the one who's behind the people. The war is not with flesh, but against principalities and powers. This is how Jesus, when he saw people mistreating him, could say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He knew that it was not a human war. It was a divine war that was being fought. Satan led the cruel mob in its abuse of the Savior. It was his purpose. Listen to this. It was his purpose to provoke him to retaliation if possible or to drive him to perform a miracle to release himself and thus break up the plan of salvation. One stain upon his human life. One failure of his humanity to endure the terrible test and the Lamb of God would have been an imperfect offering and the redemption of man a failure. What was Satan trying to do? Provoke him. Have you ever been provoked before? Remember, when you are provoked, it's not the person, it's the one behind the person. Satan uses people to provoke you. It's not the person. Don't get mad at the person. Get mad at the one behind the person. Pray for the one who the devil is using to provoke you. Pray that God would bring salvation into their life. Pray that God would have full possession of their being. And ask God to give you the victory over the real enemy, Satan. Satan was using people to try to provoke Jesus to retaliate or perform a miracle that would release him from the physical abuse that he was going through. Brothers and sisters, when you are physically mistreated, you want it to stop. Nobody enjoys physical abuse such as the type that Jesus went through. Hmm. Be assured, Satan knew that this was coming. 
He had spent many hours thinking and contemplating, how can I make the world's Redeemer fail? He had learned his lesson from the three trials in the wilderness that were unsuccessful because it was met with the Scripture weapon, it is written. He had ample time to think this thing through, and he was unleashing every bit of his demonic wisdom upon Jesus. So he turns to physical abuse, and he pours it on with great intensity. Desire of Ages, page 741 and 42, says this, Since the Passover supper with the disciples, he, Jesus, had taken neither food nor drink. He had agonized in the garden of Gethsemane in conflict with satanic agencies. He had endured the anguish of the betrayal and had seen his disciples forsake him and flee. He had taken, he had been taken to Annas and then to Caiaphas and then to Pilate and from Pilate he had been sent to Herod and then sent to Pilate. From insult to renewed insult, from mockery to mockery, twice tortured by the scourge. Listen to this. All that night, there had been scene after scene of a character to try the soul of a man to the uttermost. Christ had not failed. Somebody ought to say amen to that. Christ had not failed. He had spoken no word but that tended to the glorif- to glorify God. All through the disgraceful farce of a trial, he had borne himself with firmness and dignity. Christ had not failed. Why? I want that experience. I want that experience of not failing in the heat of the battle. How was it that Jesus was able to overcome in this intensified battle? He spent time with his father in Bible study, in prayer. He surrendered his will to his heavenly father. This stuff is not complicated, brothers and sisters. This is why the devil works so hard to get you busy. One person well said the acronym for busy being under Satan's yoke. Works to keep you busy so that you cannot tap into that divine source of power that will give you this experience when the war intensifies. He doesn't want you to be victorious. He doesn't want you to overcome. That's okay. You can go to church. You can even teach Sabbath school and preach from the pulpit every now and then. But as long as he can get you with your temper, that's okay. As long as he can get you to mistreat your children and mistreat your spouse, that's okay. As long as he can get you to slip up every now and then. Indulge those lustful habits. That's okay. Go on. Make yourself feel comfortable going to church while you're still indulging 
in sin on the side. The frontline battle, brothers and sisters, the battle of surrender, the surrender of self to the glorification of God. Putting self in the dust that God may be glorified. And Jesus did just that. Truly, it was well written when Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 30, we read this yesterday, Hereafter I will not talk with you much, for the prince of this world cometh. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. He has nothing in me. And as we read from the book, Great Controversy yesterday, she says that those who expect to be in the kingdom of heaven one day will have the same experience. This is why when Jesus was physically mistreated, he did not retaliate because the prince of this world had nothing in him. This is why as we see Jesus go from scene after scene after scene through this great hour of trial, as Jesus was being squeezed by persecution, all that came out was love. Because the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. There was nothing but goodness that could come out because there was nothing but goodness that was within. Hmm. Paul well described this experience in Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. He advises us as God's children that we should be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God. Was that not the experience of Jesus as he goes through these trials? A good soldier of Christ <clears throat> will have this experience, being dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oftentimes we get that reversed, don't we? Satan comes with a temptation. We're alive and vibrant, ready to do his bidding. We're too easily allured with the seduction of sin. But God wants us to be dead indeed unto sin and alive to the appeals of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Go with me to our scripture reading, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. We've got to wind this thing down. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. It's an astonishing passage of scripture here in light of what we have just studied. Peter, the man who betrayed Christ, or denied him rather, writes these words here. He says, for even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now, generally speaking, when we look at this Bible passage, we tend to apply it in its broader context that Jesus is our example in all points. And indeed, that is true. But if you're going to stay true to the contextual understanding of the passage, Peter is speaking about specifically that Jesus is our example in suffering. He suffered in all points like as we are. Leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. And as Jesus was suffering, 
There was no sin, neither was there guile found in his mouth. Hmm. I remember when I was in school, going to math class and watching the teacher stand in the front of the class and write a math problem on the board, and she would teach us how to figure out and solve the problem. She would give us an example of the problems that we would be solving in our math lesson. And as she gave us that example, that example on the board was a model that I could apply in solving the problems that I would find in my math lesson. Jesus has done this for us. He has given us an example so that when we come to this time of trial and persecution as the war intensifies, we can look to Him as the example and find the solution to the problem. Why would Peter say that Jesus is our example in suffering? Because my Bible and yours tells us that one day we are going to suffer very similar to the way that Jesus did. Listen to this review and herald April 14th of 1896. I think things will come into focus at this point. We're told, the forces of darkness will unite with human agencies who have given themselves to the control of Satan. And the same scenes that were exhibited at the trial, rejection, and crucifixion of Christ will be what? Now listen to me carefully, friends, before I finish the statement. I'm not trying to be a fear monger. Fear is a poor motivator. If you depend upon fear to motivate you, you need to get in your prayer closet and work it out with God and not come out until you work it out. We're not here to uh, have fear as our motivation. But what we're here to do is we are looking at the battle that is coming before us. Yes, we have a battle day after day that we have to fight. But Bible prophecy tells us, as it was in the life of Jesus, that the war is going to intensify as we get to the end. And as we get to the end, the Bible and the spirit of prophecy describes to us the intensified battle that is coming. Now is our time of preparation to meet that battle. And what we are told in the pen of inspiration is that the scenes that played out in the last 48 hours of the life of Christ are going to be revived again in our lives in the end of this earth's history. So it's imperative for us to not let fear motivate us to try to prepare us for that time, but to look to Jesus and ask him to equip us as the greatest of all generals to be successful when that battle comes. The forces of darkness will unite with human agencies who have, been, who have given themselves into the control of Satan the same scenes that were exhibited in the trial, rejection, and crucifixion of Christ will be revived. Through yielding to satanic influences, men will be transformed into fiends. And those who were created in the image of God, who were formed to honor and glorify their creator, listen to this, listen to this, will become the habitation of dragons. And Satan 
will see in an apostate race his masterpiece of evil. Men who reflect his own image. God created you in the image of God. Satan wants you to have his image. And in the last day, brothers and sisters, we will have one of two images. It will either be the image of God in us or it will be the image of Satan in us. And the choices that you make today, the choices you make tomorrow, the choices you make that you have throughout the rest of your life here on this earth will determine whose image you will have in the last days. And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, only those who have the image of Jesus will be found successful in the great battle that is yet to come. And brothers and sisters, we don't get the image of God by looking at the people around us. Somebody ought to say amen to that. You look at the people around you and you will have the image of Satan. That's what the disciples did. They were comparing themselves amongst themselves. They were looking at this person and that person. They were finding the faults and failures in all the different disciples and lifting themselves up and feeling rather proud. And we know that pride is at the core of Satan's being. You look at people, you will have the image of Satan in the last days, and you will be, as Ellen White says, transformed into a fiend. You will engage as those in the rabble crowd around Jesus who were jerking him one way after the other, trying to tear him into pieces like wild beasts. But the good news this morning is this, you can have that image of Jesus. Without him, all we have is the image of Satan. But Jesus has provided a way for us to have our character so transformed. And that's why he says, look unto me. And be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Hmm. Satan is looking for ways to push your buttons, to make you impatient, to lose your temper, to provoke you to retaliation. He is looking for ways to reveal your weaknesses and to make you into one of his foot soldiers. And yesterday we looked at the concept of asking God to show us where our weaknesses are so that he can make those weaknesses into a strength, a fortress, if you will. A friend of mine shared with me a statement after I preached the message yesterday that I want to share with you. It's from Gospel Workers. It's not on the screen. Page 126, it says this, by watchfulness and prayer, he may so guard his weakest points that they will become his strongest points. Somebody ought to say hallelujah. Through the grace of Christ, men may acquire moral stamina strength of will, and stability of purpose. There is power in this grace to enable them to rise above the alluring influences, uh, influencing, uh, influences of temptation of Satan and become loyal, devoted Christians. Mm. Praise God for that promise. We can let those Areas of weakness that pull us down time and time again. God can make them a strength, a fortress of good. Where we once fall, 
we can be victorious. And brothers and sisters, when your friends and your family see that the areas of weakness that they know so well in your life, when they see God make that an area of a fortress of strength, they will say, I want the power that they have. And that will be a silent witness that will bring people into the kingdom of heaven. You know, from a heavenly perspective, I'm sorry, from an earthly perspective, you look at the battle in the last 48 hours of the life of Christ, from a human perspective, who won the battle? Yep, Satan. They all thought they were successful, got them through the trial, got the, execute, the, the sentence of execution. They were even able to physically mistreat him and then finally hang him on a cross and put him in a grave. We won. But from a heavenly perspective, brothers and sisters, God won that war. Amen? We need to look not at the things which are earthly, but look at the things that are heavenly. We need to ask God to help us to see things from His perspective and not from ours. Because, brothers and sisters, when that time comes and the war intensifies, in the closing scenes of this earth's history, it will appear from all human perspective that Satan has won the battle. But we know from the life of Jesus and from the countless promises of God that he will win this war in the end. And so I ask you this morning, what is the area of weakness that is a fortress of Satan in your life? I'm not speaking generally. We all struggle with sin. But I'm asking specifically. What specifically in your life is that fortress of strength for Satan? That sin that causes you to fall time and time again. That keeps you from being that soldier that God wants you to be. What is that area? And this morning my simple appeal to you is this. Would you like to say, God, I'm willing to evict Satan out of that fortress that he has built in my life. And I'm asking you to make that area of weakness a fortress for good. That will not only bring me closer to you, but will also be a witness to those around me. This is not a general appeal. I'm not talking about sin generally. You know the specific things that you struggle with. And if you would like to say this morning, Father, I have a specific thing that I am thinking about. I'm giving it to you. Turn this weakness into a strength. I'm going to ask you to stand and let the Father know that that's what you want to do. Father in heaven, here we are once again, standing before you in an act of commitment. We recognize, Lord, that we have a specific area of weakness in our lives. There may be more than one. 
where, the Satan, where Satan has a foothold in our lives, where he has something in us. And Lord, we want to evict him out of our hearts. That there would be nothing of him in our lives. And although we have tried to do it many times ourselves, Lord, we have failed. So we come to you this morning. Thanking you that you are going to help us in this area. That you are going to turn this weakness into a strength. And that it will bring glory not to me, but it will bring glory to you. Lord, I pray that as we go from this place of worship, that we will not leave the commitment in the seats where we have made it. That we will not hurry on throughout our day and forget what has happened in this place. That we will not follow the example of Herod who pushed aside the conviction of the Holy Spirit and forgot what he said. But that we would take with us, Lord, the commitment and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And by your grace, let you work a miracle in our lives. Thank you, Father, for blessing us. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, Or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.